Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Astronomy. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and I just spoke with Dr. Vera Kolb about her new edited volume, Astrobiology, An Evolutionary Approach. This book was published by the CRC Press, and it was released just a few months ago in August of 2014. Astrobiology, the study of the origin, evolution, and possible abodes of life in the universe, is a rapidly developing and highly interdisciplinary field, and Dr. Kolb introduces its many facets by bringing together an array of contemporary experts. Anyone interested in the definition of life, possible scenarios for its origin on Earth, or potential sites of extraterrestrial life can find a wealth of current research from every relevant discipline. And with that, I'll turn it over to our conversation. I'm here today with Dr. Vera Kolb to discuss her new book, Astrobiology, An Evolutionary Approach. Dr. Kolb is a professor of chemistry at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, and she's the editor of this new volume, which brings together 37 authors from many different research backgrounds to introduce this highly interdisciplinary field of astrobiology. So welcome to New Books in Astronomy, Dr. Kolb, and thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. (laughs) So uh, maybe you can start off our conversation by saying a little bit about yourself. What drew you to become a chemist? I decided to become a chemist at age of 13, uh, which is the age I got introduced to astrobiology. I have read a book, a small booklet, authored by Oparin, who was a Russian biochemist who laid out the first chemical theory of origins of life. At that time, I did not understand everything that he was saying in the book, but I understood enough to see that chemistry can be used to explain origins of life. This got me extremely excited, and this is when I decided to become a chemist. Mm -hmm. So your interest in chemistry really came along at the same time as your interest in astrobiology? Well, um, at that time, term astrobiology did not really exist, so I continued with chemistry. And then, at that time, it was very difficult to get jobs in chemistry, so my father recommended that I go into chemical engineering, which I did, and after I finished chemical engineering, then it was clear that if I wanted a job, I had it in my pocket, and then I went back to chemistry and have obtained master's degree in chemistry. This was all done in Belgrade, old Yugoslavia. Then I came to United States to study for my PhD in organic chemistry. But astrobiology and origins of life were on my mind. I had these files and folders. I was studying all of this. But I thought that one had to be a very special person to do this kind of work because of its importance. So I stuck with chemistry. I did some medicinal chemistry, pharmacologically related projects. Have used some concepts from chemical engineering as they apply to chemistry. But the big uh, event was my first sabbatical leave uh, at university, as you probably know, they give you, uh, after seven years, a possibility to go somewhere and learn something new. So I was uh, at University of Wisconsin Parkside then, and I was close to age 40. So I decided to try to learn astrobiology, and I wrote to Leslie Orgel, 
who is a very, very famous founding father of modern astrobiology. And I wrote everything that I told you about how, you know, I was, I fell in love with Perrin's work at the age of 13. And I think that time is running out on me. I, it is now or ever. And could I come to his laboratory? He uh, was located at uh, Salk Institute for Biological Sciences. And he said, yes, I was overjoyed. So I had a year sabbatical. I went there. And I must say, this was the best thing which ever happened in my scientific life. First of all, uh, NASA had a program uh, which was training scientists in astrobiology, which at that time was called exobiology. And so this big grant was given to Leslie Orgel and famous, equally famous Stanley Miller, whom you may know was the uh, person who did um, spark uh, experiment and generated amino acids um, uh, abiotically. So I got in touch when I was in uh, San Diego to uh, Stanley Miller, and pretty soon I was working with both. So it was the best year of my life, as I said. And after one seminar, we were walking out, and I said to Dr. Orgo, Dr. Orgo, I really would not want to go home. This is so exciting. He says, well, don't. He says, I will provide funding for you for the second year. And so uh, what happened was the university gave me leave of absence, and I did my second year in San Diego. And I, I must mention this because both Leslie Orgel and Stanley Miller are not with us anymore. They were fabulous people, fabulous educators. But something very interesting about my work with Stanley Miller, going back to my childhood, when I decided to become a chemist, we had high school competitions, and uh, I had this experiment which was designed my pro by my professor at that time, uh, whose name was Momchilo Jovetic. I'm not going to ask you to pronounce this name, but the experiment was an old experiment where you can perform chemical reactions by electrical spark. So I was very familiar with this kind of work, although I never applied it prebiotically. So I had this link with Stanley Miller my childhood, the spark experiment, which actually got me the awards in chemistry. So um, anyhow, after I came uh, back to University of Wisconsin Parkside, I started astrobiology program, and I was following the uh, pathways laid out by Miller and Orgel which means basically I am what is called a prebiotic chemist, which means I do chemistry under prebiotic conditions. By prebiotic, you mean before life evolved or we don't know exactly how it came about in the early earth. Is, uh, is, is that correct? Well, prebiotic chemistry, I'm glad you asked this, can occur in what Stanley Miller and others call prebiotic soup, which means on Earth, presumably, when there was no life, there was chemistry going on in, these, in the prebiotic soup medium, also in the atmosphere, also under volcanic conditions. But this was all, you know, conceived as occurring on early Earth before life. Now, what was critical for this whole concept is how do you test if you make some compounds in the laboratory? 
under simulated prebiotic conditions, which means you just mix up chemicals and you cannot intervene. You cannot say, oh, well, now I'm going to add this in a sequence or I'm going to add this special catalyst. If this did not exist in prebiotic, chemistry, in prebiotic earth, you cannot do it. However, to test these concepts, we actually have chemistry laboratory, if you will, which is going on on asteroids and in the space. And chemicals rain down on Earth on meteorites. So when chemists analyze meteorites, they find the chemicals. So if chemicals can be made in space or on asteroids where there is no life, then if you can make them in prebiotic soup or other prebiotic conditions, then this is a big plus for your synthesis. So I then paid more and more attention to the chemistry on, meteori on meteorites. Actually, meteorite is what falls down on Earth. Meteor is a body before it falls down. Anyways, so I became very interested in the conditions out in the space. And so um, my newest research actually deals with this because... They were no uh, on on uh, asteroids. There, there was no water necessarily, or water was available just in the transient periods. And I became interested in the chemical reactions in the solid state, the way they could occur on meteorites, uh, on meteors or asteroids. So I have expanded my research portfolio. And one of the biggest breakthroughs, I think, in prebiotic chemistry, in my mind, as opposed to prebiotic soup. In the prebiotic soup, you assumed that all chemicals were water-soluble. So they were swimming in water, meeting each other, colliding, giving products. But most organic compounds are not soluble in water, okay? So the question is, how did they react on prebiotic earth or elsewhere? So a new breakthrough came in organic chemistry, uh, mostly initiated by chemist uh, Ronald Breslow, where he has shown that chemicals, which are not water-soluble, can react very effectively in water. You may wonder how. And the answer is, since they hate water, the technical term is hydrophobic, they try to avoid water, and then they get together, and as they get together, probability of their reaction is increased. So this is a new thing which is also studied in conjunction with green chemistry, which is environmentally friendly chemistry. So strangely... All the fields of chemistry are merging, so green chemistry is applicable a lot to uh, major synthetic pathways in astrobiology. So you're uh, touching on a few different aspects of astrobiology. Like you said, so prebiotic uh, chemistry is one of them. Then you have to think about um, the processes that are going on on the surfaces of meteorites and maybe what the early Earth was like and all of these different fields. How did this project come about to bring together so many authors with their different backgrounds? And where did the idea for this particular book come from and this approach that you have put together all of this research in one place? Okay, let me answer first that astrobiology is a science with many goals. And this is outlined by NASA, uh, which has what is called Astrobiology Roadmap. So astrobiology roadmap involves many, many topics, not just prebiotic chemistry and chemistry on meteorites that I'm interested in. It involves evolution of matter. How did matter evolve from Big Bang on? It involves evolution of life on Earth. It involves 
possibility of universal life. Maybe what we see here, life on Earth, there are some components of it which are universal for life that we will find elsewhere. And there are many, many more goals. Just to mention a couple more, we are looking for biomarkers. Uh, in the early Earth, when life was developing, uh, we are looking for very old fossils or bacteria, for example. Anyhow, um, to answer your second question, how did this book come about? Well, this was very interesting because I was contacted by John Novas, who at that time was one of the acquisition editors for CRC, and he was coming to one of the major astrobiology conferences, which was held in San Diego. And he says, would you like to talk to me about possibility for a book? So I said, fine. So John came to all three of my lectures. Then we sat in a hall and talked for three hours. I don't know who was more excited about astrobiology, John or me. And then he asked me, he says, would you like to write astrobiology book yourself or would you like to have it edited? I immediately said edited. Why did I say this? Because there are so many people on the forefront of exciting new leads in astrobiology that I wanted to give them voice. Yes, I could have written a book myself and some sections of the book, I'm sure, would be very strong, but never so exciting as if I had all these authors. So I asked John a little bit about specifics of the book, and he said, which I wrote down and had in front of my eyes for many months to come, he, says, he said, books evolve. And then I thought, just as he said that, I said, well, astrobiology evolves too. So my immediate concept for the book was astrobiology as an evolutionary science. So when I wrote a book proposal for CRC, which I had to submit later on and had it reviewed, I got more and more excited about this evolutionary approach. So... This is how the idea of the book was conceived. And then I went to the second stage to recruit the authors. What was it like to work with so many authors on the project? Okay, this, uh, as I said, this was something that was very interesting and complex interaction because I had a vision for the book and I formed the vision of the book based on the expertise that I have seen on many conferences that I attend uh, in the field of astrobiology. And I must say, I'm the most avid conference person ever. I, I live for conferences. So from my knowledge of conferences, I knew that some authors were older, established. Uh, they did the work which was basic, important book for the field, but then there were some young people who were venturing on new venues. So when I recruited them from all the categories, it was a very nice interaction. I actually missed my authors. I was very sad when the project was done because there was this wonderful correspondence. What I have done, I let them write how they felt they should explain what their expertise was. I never interfered saying, oh, I want you to add this. Oh, no, I want you to cite my papers because you cited somebody else's. No, never interfered. Also, I could have put more of my own work in the book. I didn't want that. I said, if I would be buying an astrobiology book, I don't want editor to take the opportunity and have six 
chapters in the book on their own work. Uh, the book should be compilation of people, uh, people's work, which is diverse in looking into the future. This is what I, my major criterion was. Is this looking into the future? Could people who get this book use this book Use two, three, five years, or even more, as inspiration for the new ideas. And that was my criterion. And I'm very, very happy with my authors. I think they work hard. They're top on the line. I still correspond with many of them. I said, I miss them. It was, um, you know, when people talk about teamwork, I never really understood this fully until... I did the book. And, and so as the editor, I helped my authors with, you know, uh, editing, minutia. I must admit that I got my fabulous training in editing business by Francesca McGowan, who is the acquisition editor who took over after John took over wow. us. And Francesca told me how I must be very careful when I sent her a chapter, everything must be done to perfection. So I did it for most of my authors. Because some of them, you know, would make mistakes. And I said, it's easier for me to correct it. So anyway, it, it was a nice relationship, which was exciting to me because I learned so much. I learned about the fields in depth that I knew where, you know, new fields in astrobiology, and I encouraged my authors to put more and more stuff. They would write to me. They said, are you sure you want this in your book? I said, yes. So to answer your quick question in a length, it was a wonderful, wonderful adventure for me. So you mentioned in the preface, and I think this is partly what you're getting at, is uh, you, you call it the urgency of the field. Uh, astrobiology is a relatively new discipline being defined this way in any case. So, so what do you mean by the urgency exactly? Okay, what I mean by urgency is you cannot live in the past because a field is moving forward extremely rapidly. So if you are not looking forward, you're falling behind. I would just like to mention one of these examples and in every chapter, I, from every chapter, I could give you examples. For example, when I went to work with Orgo, uh, which was 1992 to 1994, to give you a time frame, at that time I was very fascinated with the field of viruses because they're so simple. And I felt if we are to understand life, you know, Maybe viruses are good beginning. So when I ask Orgo, he says, well, viruses are parasites which evolved after life started. So this was the opinion at that time. And I was very disappointed because I really like simpler things. I'm your reductionist, if you wish, scientifically speaking. Turns out that the newest, newest, newest thing is that viruses are ancient. And if you look at viruses as such, if you look at the literature, it just exploded how viruses are ancient. In RNA, which is believed to be uh, to be the first life on Earth, so-called RNA world, we have RNA viruses. So I badly wanted RNA or RNA viruses or viruses in my book. So I was very fortunate I got, two, I got two authors or two groups. One was from Finland, um, Mati Yalasvori and Yama Benford. They already talked about viruses and their extraterrestrial possibilities, so they wrote a chapter in a primer. But that was fascinating about an article from Scientific American uh, titled Are Viruses Alive, uh, which was authored by a famous virologist. Uh, his name is Luis Villarreal from uh, University of California, Irvine. So I contacted these authors and they agreed to contribute. So here, 
I must say I'm so proud to have section on viruses in relationship with beginning of life in my book. This is this look forward where more and more stuff is coming out on this. About the, the viruses, it raises, I think, a very central question to the book, or at least the field, is um, what exactly is life? There are many ways to define it. So how do you choose a way to define what life means? Well, I love your question. I'm so pleased you have asked me. Um, well, when we start from definition of life, the first thing is like, okay, all of us know what life is, okay? So what's the big deal? But when you try to define life, to give a decent scientific definition, and especially the one which will involve definition which might be applicable for search of life elsewhere, one runs into major troubles. So I was working on this for many years. This is also my own field of research interest. So uh, just to give you, and, and actually I have published lots of papers on this. Um, I will just mention a couple things here because I could go on and on on this topic. What happens is, if we, this, this question goes back to Aristotle, a famous philosopher, and, and before I continue, you're going to laugh at this. I, I hope not, but many people just laugh at me. I said I was so captured with the problem of defining life I went back to all definitions, including Aristotle and stuff, and then I took every single philosophy course which was offered at my university. This was, you know, within recent past. I took a course, philosophy of science, old Greeks, limits of thought, name it. I took virtually every course which existed. And I will just tell you one thing which I believe I can explain in this short time. You can describe life via, this is going back to Aristotle, but I'm going to really make this simple. So, Aristotle, please forgive me. You can make a laundry list what life is, okay? So, you try making this laundry list, but the problem is this laundry list has to fit to anything which is alive. So, we are looking for the lowest common denominator. If we define life as, you know, at our level, intelligence, then bacteria are not alive because, you know, they don't have intelligence. If we define life via bacteria, then we omitted intelligence, which is, you know, critical for contact in extraterrestrial life. If we define life as metabolism, you know, something has to make chemicals and so on, then we run into problem with genetics. How do you transmit this, you know, information? So NASA has its own definitions of life, which include both genetic components and evolutions and mutations. So I was very, very concerned that my readers must get good view on this. So I wrote a few papers. One paper I'm pretty proud of um, was re-examining if viruses are alive or not, philosophically speaking. Anyways, so I recruited uh, the top expert in this field. His name is Radu Popa. So Radu Popa wrote a whole book where this is the best book ever, where he listed all the definitions by different people through different times. He critically examined those. He explained how we should look at these definitions. You know, philosophically speaking, you know, this is area of logic. You have different definitions. And, and then I was looking, is there something new in the definitions of life? Is, is there some requirement for life that I myself missed, perhaps? although, you know, I try to stay current. So there was one brand new work which was not connected to astrobiology before, 
which uh, set out uh, the requirement, uh, one central requirement for life is communication. And this is work by the philosopher by name of Günther Wittzani. So Günther is a philosopher from Austria. And I asked him if he could write a chapter uh, for our book in which he would explain how deeply communication, requirement for communication goes through definitions of life. And he did a beautiful job. So he, he uh, not only addressed communication in terms of you know, higher intelligence language and so on, but also communication between plants, between bacteria that communicate, by chemicals, for example. And then he went all the way down to the RNA world. So I'm very grateful that Günther did this, and I enjoyed tremendously working with him on this chapter. So definition of life is covered by Radu Popa and his chapter in the book. And we have brand new look, requirement for communication in depth by Günther Wittsani. So I'm very, very proud of, of uh, you know, that I was able to engage these rather famous authors. Well, this is one of the things that is most interesting about this book to me was that not only, like you just said, that there's a chapter by a philosopher on what, what the meaning of life is and this new requirement of communication, but there's also a chapter uh, pretty early on on education and public outreach for astrobiology, which was a very interesting thing to see in what is a, sort of a collection of scientific results to also have an emphasis on how to best communicate the main concepts to the public. So this is the um, chapter by Timothy F. Slater. It's chapter three. And I just wanted to ask you, how did that want to become a goal of yours to include that in the book? And maybe we could talk about some of those broader, those big issues that are so important to communicate. Well, I'm very, very pleased you picked up on this. Let me tell you, as I said, I, am, I really like to go to conferences I ever always learn, but I also try to learn about teaching techniques because it's very important when you teach. I may be very enthusiastic about the subject, but you have to have a good way of teaching. So I went to numerous uh, educational conferences, and one of them was titled, um, it had teaching astrobiology from learner's perspective. I said to myself, what is this? And I said, I must go. What is this learner's perspective? And how is one to teach astrobiology from learner's perspective? So I went to the conference, which was run by Timothy Slater. And I must say, without any hesitation, I must say that this is the best education, educational conference I ever attended. So it was a small conference, and there were professors there. This was for professors. And Tim told us how he developed this learner-centered technique. It is not, you know, I start talking, and I'm so excited, and I jump up and down. This is not what teaching is all about. You have to reach students starting from what they know, what do they learn wrong, how can they be engaged. So team was number one as far as I was concerned. I came back home and I immediately put this to practice. And needless to say, you know, I really could see a huge difference on my students. Then I went specifically to another conference because Tim Slater was one of the uh, speakers. Um, I would say he's one of the foremost educators. He's a, phys he's a physicist in, by training, but also astro you know, physics is part of astrobiology. So his chapter... I got him, and he was actually not even in town, and I said, Tim, do you still remember me? Of course, he remembered me because I asked so many questions, and I was so eager to learn. So he luckily, you know, uh, remembered me based on what I thought, you know, that he should remember me, and I said, could, could you write a chapter? Well, he 
needless to say, is overloaded. Because everybody wants steam. But he agreed. And he produced fabulous chapter, which is completely counterintuitive in some respects. Everybody should read this. We, are, we were all doing it wrong. We say, you know, this is outreach. We're going to invite this famous speaker to give a lecture, uh, you know, in a high school, for example, and kids are going to learn and so on. What happened, as Tim pointed out, unless you put this somehow into lesson plan or what we call curriculum, students won't be tested on it. They won't have a chance to revisit and relearn, and your efforts... Yes, there will be some interesting aspects of it, but this is not the best way. So, so I read his chapter and I said, I cannot believe myself. Not believe my, you know, I believed I knew quite a bit um, about education, but the outreach, he really talked about outreach, which is critical. So I think this is a central chapter in a book for both education and outreach. Education part, I was very familiar with, as I said, because I took his course. Or, um, uh, yeah, it was sort of course, a short course. But for outreach, I don't do much outreach myself. I had lots of misconceptions about outreach. So, you know, I'm probably not the only one. So, to answer your question, this was great luck on my part that I was able to recruit Tim. <laughs> and it really does bring together these different aspects that you mentioned. If you are a professional scientist, what are the things that you can do to engage in a classroom and what are the best ways to prepare for a school visit or to incorporate it into the curriculum and, and all of these different strategies that I found very interesting Um and also just to boil down or to try to consolidate the major points that are so important, the, the most important things to communicate about astrobiology to the public. So he isolates three different things. He says um, the search for water uh, in hand in hand with the search for life is one big concept. The fact that bacteria are alive and the most common form of life on Earth is uh, also a very important concept to, to get across to the public. And then this idea that, that extraterrestrial life is actually likely and, and um, the Drake equation is something that comes up again yeah. and again in the book. So actually, could you maybe describe just briefly what the Drake equation is? Well, Drake equation is found uh, in uh, not more than one chapter, it's a very important equation because it gives you quantitative view of possibility of finding life. It breaks down guessing process, essentially, into something you can determine experimentally, such as finding what are called exoplanets, planets which are similar to Earth, but, you know, they are not part of solar system, you know, just to simplify this. And then, you know, uh, then we have this uh, topic of, you know, could life evolve there? So he has many components. And this can be explained to students at any level. And I believe uh, this is done quite successfully as Tim Slater and others. Uh, when I took Tim Slater uh, short course, that's how he started. But I would just like, if you don't mind, to point out another very important thing about astrobiology uh, central points, which I would not want, you know, not to be noticed. And that is the thread of evolution. And this is where, you know, this is also connected, you know, with looking at the life, possibility of life in the universe. Thread of evolution. You start, you have to start from Big Bang, which means when universe started, then formation of solar system, then, you know, all these other things. Then possibility of exoplanets. This is, you know, very important for, you know, Drake's equation. And so, um, then what happens is we have prebiotic life, which we covered. What we have not covered, and I would just like to 
point to this. Talking about biotic evolution, once life started. Okay, first of all, how did solar system form? How did planets form? And then how about exoplanets? Because you have these exoplanets in the Drake equation. I was extremely fortunate to have Ken Rice, who works for Royal Astronomy um, uh, for, um, uh, in Edinburgh Observatory. He had explained all of this. So you ask me about Drake equation. Well, you know what about exoplanets? That's covered by Ken Rice. Then we now go through, we covered, I just want to sort of move along the evolutionary line so people see the thread. Okay, so we had Ken Rice cover this. Then we go to prebiotic synthesis, which I covered. And I covered it in relationship of what we see on meteorites. But there is another fascinating aspect of prebiotic chemistry, namely, how do you synthesize prebiotically biochemical precursors, which means you have to have some of these central compounds for life made before life exists. So Jim Cleaves, um, who is from Chapter 5 provided, which I call probably the best chapter in this area. Now, Jim Cleaves is uh, the most famous. He's a very young man. And I feel proud of the young generation of astrobiologists. So this is what he brought in. And then further, we can look at present-day biochemical pathways as models for uh, prebiotic synthesis. And that was covered by Gene McDonald, whom I also personally met uh, when I was at my, as I said, two best years of my astrobiological life, 1992 to four in, um, at the Salt Institute. So I met Gene, and he's an absolute top expert. And he covered a lot of ground in his chapter, which is chapter four, uh, chapter six, where he was talking about last common universal, uh, last universal common ancestor. So uh, both Gene Cleves and Gene McDonald provide a transition from prebiotic to early biotic chemistry, okay? Now, we have another step. So we have all these chemicals which are mixed in. How do they get organized? So uh, one very important new uh, field is how do you encapsulate organic materials in protocells? This is not really a new, new field. This is an old field which started with operating, and as you remember, operating got me going uh, in astrobiology. But the new look, because in operating's time, we even did not know about DNA and stuff like that when he proposed his original model. So Christine Keating whom I met at the Gordon, Gordon Research Conference on Origins of Life, is right now the best expert on encapsulation of organic materials in making protocells. And I have to tell you a very interesting uh, anecdote. Uh, I was eating lunch and Christine was sitting next to me and there was this big lunch at the Gordon Conference where people were just chit-chatting. And it was before her talk. And then when, he gave, when she gave a talk, I said, oh, my God, I should not have chit-chatted. Had I known about her work, I should have, you know, milk her brain, whatever is the expression. So she addressed vesicles, cells, membranes, coacervates, and everything else. So this is, in my mind, operating re revisited. So here is your... Evolution now, early life organization of matter. Now, following the evolution line, I already mentioned quite a bit about early life via RNA and viruses. 
But what about microorganisms? Uh, very simple life. When did they evolve? So I was very interested. This was my personal approach to the book. I was very interested in the fossils, bacterial fossils and early fossils. And, and this was very, very important that um, I was very fortunate to have David Wasey from Australia who studied these fossils uh, and lucky circumstance is that he's from Australia and that's where the best fossils are preserved, uh, bacterial or early fossils. But then what happens to microorganisms? Uh, can they survive horrible conditions on Earth? Can they survive in space? Can they be found on Mars? So we have this um, evolution, if you wish, in terms of survivability. Can they survive? We have several chapters Gerda Horneck and her co-worker Ralph Muller talk about microorganisms in space. I heard Gerda speak many years ago and I could not believe how uh, important her work is and she is continuing and I can tell you microorganisms can survive pretty well in space. How about Mars? Well, uh, authors such as Chris McKay and his research group, they used, they tested limits of life in terms of cold and dry on Earth. There are various deserts on Earth, Atacama Desert in Chile and others, and Chris McKay, who works for NASA, is the man for that. I read his chapter, I couldn't believe it because he put in all new projects which must be addressed. Now, you are talking about Mars, we have Jesus Martinez Frias, who talked about search for life on Mars. And he took what is called astrogeological approach because he's a geologist. Now, you also said extraterrestrial life. Um, lots of problems. People still believe in silicon life. There are these little silicon aliens. Well, Silicon is not very promising for extraterrestrial life. And I have Joe Lambert, who is probably one of the top silicon chemists in the world. And I had the pleasure of working on my second sabbatical from him when he was at Northwestern. And what happened there, uh, Joe and I were interested in transport and stabilization of organic chemicals by making uh, silicon uh, bonds, but anyway, extraterrestrial life is probably not based on silicon. And I was, uh, I just going back to you know, life in general, very basic life. Lots of problems with phosphorus. Our life on Earth is made by phos uh, based on phosphorus, but there are several types of phosphorus compounds which we don't know how to make. A very young fellow, Matthew Pasek, uh, had a big breakthrough. I heard him also speak to, to a Gordon at the Gordon Conference. And he, was, he just had a big breakthrough in phosphorus in prebiotic chemistry. And I did. I had a couple papers on this topic myself, one with Orgo when I was there. And then I worked when I was uh, during my golden years, um, in uh, 1992 to 1994, I also had a project with Gustav Arrhenius from Scripps uh, Institute of Oceanography, who is by training a geologist. So we looked at the phosphorus. Anyway, it was okay what we did, but we did not have a total breakthrough. The total breakthrough came with young Matthew Pasek. So uh, this evolution, how, you know, we had big problems, and we did do little bits here, little bit there, and the young people take over and make a breakthrough. One more thing that I would like to, to say, um, talking about extraterrestrial life, which you mentioned, uh, Dirk Schulze-Makush uh, is a leading expert today um, looking for extraterrestrial life, and he's interested 
Venus, Mars, Titan, looking for what are called biosignatures and geoindicators. So he covered in his chapter, gave yet another look on extraterrestrial life. But one thing that I have not addressed, which I must address in terms of evolution, there is evolution of a problem, but there is evolution of an approach, okay? So you were interested in origins of li- uh, uh, in the definition of life, and I offered my view on that. But philosophical question is, is there an algorithm for life? By algorithm, I mean a formula. Can we write a formula similar to Drake's equation and say, uh, you know, I'm going to write a formula for life. If I have this, this, and that, then I can define life by formula. That's what is meant by algorithm, simplify approach. So I heard a young woman by the name of Sarah Imari Walker talk on this topic at a conference, was one of the NASA conferences. And I was going to write this chapter for the book myself. I was very enthusiastic about it because I felt I had a lot to say on the topic. I had philosophical approaches. I had everything. This was going to be my second chapter. After I heard Sarah talk, I said, she has so much more to offer. She had developed these new ways. So I immediately scrapped my planned, you know, participation and asked her to handle this. She has done a fabulous job. She went above and beyond the verbal definitions. She offered mathematical explanations, uh, which gives you a handle to, you know, handle, uh, handle to a quantitative approach. Again, we are going back to the idea of Drake's equation. But what she had done, realizing that some, you know, students or other readers must be rusty in math, she incorporated math primers in the strategic places in the chapter, which means she's not just a great astrobiologist, but a great educator as well. So by evolution, I think I want to say evolution of life on Earth through these, you know, early stages mostly. And, uh, you know, and also evolution of ideas and evolution of approaches. Remember, I was talking about meteorites and chemicals and meteorites, which is my real, real interest. And then, you know, sometimes I just assume everybody knows about it. But I forgot to mention a fascinating thing. And I think Leslie Orgel and uh, uh, Stanley Miller, whom, as I said, are not with us anymore, would be pleased to learn that the analysis of meteorites in terms of organics, has improved so much that, you know, going from maybe 100 compounds which were known to be on the meteorites at their time, now we have tens of thousands. And this is a new work uh, which is covered in Chapter 4 by Philippe Schmidt-Kotlin, who is an analytical genius. You know, he has this special equipment, and he analyzes things so I just want to point out this another evolution, which I forgot to mention. It's evolution of technology and analytical techniques. And I also want to add, which I forgot to add when we were talking about Tim Slater and his pedagogical approaches, we have another excellent example of pedagogical approach. How do you explain in one chapter? about astrobiology. How do you capture the readers to continue reading? Because if your overview or introductory chapter is bad, you know, readers are going to say, I'm not going to read this. So uh, I want to mention that a great pedagogical approach was developed by Aaron Goldman. That is our introductory chapter. Very engaging. So uh, this is... um, important to add to, you know, our discussion that we had about pedagogy. The great aspect of this book is that it brings together so many different things. And I I feel that every question about astrobiology that I might have had, including, you know, extraterrestrial life and maybe silicon-based life, there is a chapter that addressed that exact question. So it it was really 
perfect in that sense for um, for me and having um, such a variety, such an assortment of topics uh, allowed me to sort of uh, answer those specific questions that I went in with. So it was, uh, it was very um, satisfying that way. <laughs> I just have one more question for you, which is, what is next? What are you working on now? Okay. Um, I told you already that the, the new chemical developments are very inspiring for astrobiology. So what happens is we had, I mentioned green chemistry, which is environmentally benign. Uh, this is my chemical fascination, uh, and it is directly linked to my interest in astrobiology. And I already told you that you can do organic reactions in water very well, although organic chemicals are not water-soluble. Another fascinating development, which is rather recent, um, when we talked about prebiotic earth and prebiotic, you know, situations in exoplanets or planets on, on, in our solar system, uh, there are so-called hydrothermal events, uh, which are deep in the ocean where you have superheated water. So it's water on much higher temperature than its normal boiling point of 100 degrees Celsius, uh, which is achieved by high pressure. So this is... Lots of people think life originated in hydrothermal vents. And the hydrothermal vents suspected on other planets. And so I was fascinated by this and said, how can I access this astrobiological topic on hydrothermal vents? I'm starting from an organic chemistry background because that's where my PhD was in organic chemistry and master's degree as well. Well, when I combine these with my interest in green chemistry, it turns out that as of recently, they have found a whole bunch of organic reactions which are going on in superheated water, which do not occur normally in regular water on, under regular conditions. So I think if I do second edition of the book, there will be chapter on uh, prebiotic significance of, super, of water under superheated conditions, which is related to hydrothermal vents. So this is what I would, this is very recent, under development as we speak of in my laboratory. Another new development, this is a continuation of Philip Schmidt Copeland uh, evolution line new techniques. We have now microwave reactors which allow for extremely high temperatures and pressures, and in these reactors, this is all made safe. So you can do these experiments rather easily rather than having to use some steel you know, containers and so on. So my second project, which I will want to include you know, in the later edition, should we decide sometimes in the future for second edition, I would like to include a list of such experiments which will solve many long-standing problems in organic prebiotic chemistry. But going um, in some logical way, you ask me a specific question. Am I doing any book right now? And the answer is yes. So what I'm doing right now, I'm doing green chemistry book, again for CRC, uh, publisher, and um, I'm very excited about it because I'm doing green chemistry as an interdisciplinary approach. So I'm putting in everything that is uh, important for B9 chemistry, which, uh, as I said, would be chemistry which occurs in B9 solvents which are not toxic, such as water. So I'm building up on the astrobiological applications by doing this book. It may sound weird, but it is not because I like to do several things at the same time and then I feed on the projects from one to the other, you know, and see how I can apply my chemical knowledge to astrobiology. 
Well, that sounds good. I'll look forward to the green chemistry book as well. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for joining me and chatting about the book. The book is Astrobiology and Evolutionary Approach. And thanks so much, Dr. Vera Kolb. Well, thank you very much for your time and opportunity to share my enthusiasm with you. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to New Books in Astronomy. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and thanks for joining us.